I'm Justin Karras. I'm Farah Khan. And this is House Nine's Art and Humanity Podcast. Today, we speak with Maria O'Brien, the Material and Expression Design Leader at IKEA. We spoke with her a long time ago, back in the spring of 2019. In this episode, we talk about the importance of sincere cultural exchange and how thinking both globally and locally are crucial when considering the design, production, and lifespan of industrial design products. Maria's passion for changing how we think about waste is positively contagious. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us on the phone today. We're really, really thankful that you took some time to answer some of our questions. It's nice to be on here. It's, it's lovely that you reached out. We read that interview of you on the IKEA blog where you talk about mm-hmm. sustainability and um, design practices around sustainability and consumerism. So, yeah, you, you've, you hit this really interesting sweet spot of, you know, that intersection of like commerce and art and ethics. Thanks. I'm glad you think so. No, I'm, I've been um, really happy and lucky to be um, working with these social entrepreneurs uh, that IKEA collaborates with uh, for these smaller collections, where, um, which is what I'm talking about in that article that you were referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this really interesting collaboration where IKEA finds social entrepreneurs that produce uh, something often it's handicrafts, so um, handmade ceramics or um, hand embroidered textiles. Um, sometimes it's in natural fibers, for example, in India. And then, in sort of an effort to help these suppliers who are often much smaller than normal IKEA suppliers and much more craft based rather than industrial, they then Uh, help these suppliers scale up their production by letting them do smaller collections for IKEA while uh, designers and myself and other people from IKEA can come and uh, help them grow but also learn from them, uh, see what they are capable of doing and how maybe we could uh, scale it up so that they can create more jobs in the areas where they're they're, um, working. And um, often these social entrepreneurs are um, active or have set up in areas where where people might not have had jobs before or they're some kind of a, uh, a group of people that really need uh, support and help, whether it's because they're yeah, refugees in Jordan or if they're uh, indigenous people in Thailand. Um, it's a way of sort of supporting the communities in a way where we're kind of trying to share our knowledge around design and production to to help them grow. So it's it is really like a it's like a partnership with these communities. Yes. And do you work are you working hands on like in your day to day communication with them? Yes. So um, I have uh, what we call a business developer at IKEA who is uh, responsible for um, the contact with the suppliers directly. But I am out uh, with the designers visiting these suppliers. And for the the collection that I'm working on now, um, I have chosen to work with um, designers from the countries where we produce uh, for this collection 
that I'm doing now, I thought it would be interesting to have, uh, yeah, people from the areas and at least the countries that we're, we're producing in, because then that also helps the, the translation of, of the design to the suppliers and to the craftspeople who are making them. Uh, and um, I was just in Thailand, I think, a month ago. And uh, I had a Jordanian designer, two Thai designers, and an Indian in-house designer from IKEA. And we all started up uh, the process together on the factory floor so that we could, together with a partner, understand, like, what are the limitations in your, like, production facilities and what designs work and what has not worked before and what do the... Um, the craft people prefer. Okay, so it's like a very holistic approach. Like you're looking at the entire chain yeah. from the design to the actual production to the supply. And, Absolutely. And in this in this scenario, are you taking more of an art direction role or more of a facilitation role? I would say both. Okay. Um, my title is creative leader, which means everything and nothing. <laughs> and it's kind of this, uh, I do what I've done now and what I do is I um, come up with a concept for the collection, pick the designers, and then uh, make sure that the creative process uh, is facilitated and that the designs are created and meet up with the brief that I've basically created in the beginning of the process. But now also when I brought in all of these different designers from different cultures, I really wanted to facilitate uh, collaboration between them uh, so that uh, the different designs that they make kind of somehow have uh, something in common or sort of a, a theme to sort of branch out from uh, so that it in the end feels sort of like a, a collection that fits together. That's so beautiful. <laughs> it is. You're, yeah, yeah. No, but it was, you're, you're bridging the gap. You know, you're, you're there kind of like facilitating and like making sure people from different parts of the world find work in this space and then kind of bridging the gap between their stylistic approaches. Yeah, I'm trying to do that and trying to do it with like as, little intrusion as possible while still making sure that we make stuff that will sell because if we make stuff that doesn't sell then then we're just creating more stuff and uh and so I'm I'm kind of that I'm the IKEA representative I'm trying to uh to make sure that we make something that will work all around the world in all of the countries where IKEA is selling this collection which I think is like 22 different countries and then making sure that they create something that they're proud of and that they can still stand for and it's it's been really fascinating i was really really happy with this collaboration especially because it was the first time i picked quite a lot of external designers and uh, people i hadn't worked with before and when we met up in thailand they all instantly clicked and we had so much fun and uh, there were all of these aha moments where uh, some of the designers were saying like in my culture we uh, do this in the spring and then the others would immediately like go like, yes, we do that too in the Middle East or we do that in India. And there were all these commonalities that I never, I never knew of or never had expected that kind of came up. And it for me really showed that like there are so many commonalities when you just get um, 
yeah, when you start looking at people from different cultures, there are more commonalities and differences. It also sounds like it's such a delicate role that you're playing because, as you said, you don't want to intrude. You don't want to, like, direct people into a place where they're not being authentic or true to their own culture, but also bridging the gap between their cultures Mm -hmm. and then pleasing this company that is trying to sell a product but not making too many products. I guess I'm curious about any moments, like learning experiences that you've had that really resonate in that process. For me, like the first time I worked with one of these um, collections where we worked with social entrepreneurs, we were in India visiting, I think, three or four different suppliers in a week. And uh, it was so me and two designers and some product developers and engineers, and we were maybe five people traveling for a week. And by the end of the week, we were such a well-oiled machine. We knew exactly what to do. So when we arrived to a supplier, we would immediately ask them to show us the samples and then we would start working on the designs and we would immediately get right into the, um, to the work and start designing. And on the last day we were doing that and then the social entrepreneur was kind of hanging around like the, the person in charge of the initiative. And one of the designers started asking her about the community and the women who were working in this uh, production and, and started interviewing her, basically. And what I found was that we had become so focused on the, on the design that we had forgotten why we were doing it and forgotten to ask. And, and it made me realize that this sort of chit-chat and the, the communication between us as people had kind of gotten lost in this sort of race to be efficient uh, because we only had a day. And that's something that I brought with me going forward that you shouldn't underestimate like the coffee break or the lunch and try to make time to talk to people about why they're making stuff, even if you have a lot of stuff to do while you're out traveling. So yeah, for me, it was, that was one of the learnings that I brought with me, taking the time to talk. Oh, so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's like the overarching most important thing is to make these human connections. Exactly. And the work benefits from that. And if you focus on actually building those connections, then everyone will feel better. The work will be better. Yeah, and everyone feels more comfortable because, um, yeah, it wasn't that we were uncomfortable, but after that chat, I was like, ha, huh, hmm, something to, to think of in the future to actually make sure that everyone feels like they understand why we're doing something and what it is we're doing before we jump into it. I'm curious about your artistic process leading up to the position that you have now at, at IKEA. I assume you have a design background. Mm-hmm. What kind of work did you do before you got into this position? And how did you get into it? Um, well, I studied industrial design in Lund, which is a city in uh, university city in, in southern Sweden. And I was on exchange at um, Emily Carr. And actually, before going into industrial design, I had run my own silversmithing or like jewelry company hmm. uh, for a couple of years. Uh, I started in high school. And it went unexpectedly well. So after a gap year where I was traveling and working a bit, I actually started a a metal arts 
preparatory school where you could sort of build your portfolio to apply for art schools. So I never had any plans of becoming an industrial designer at all, or uh, it was never my plan to work at a company like IKEA. I was I was much more of a handicraft sort of uh, artistic person than flat pack designer. Uh, but I. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get into the art schools I applied for. Uh, they take extremely like a uh, limited amount of, of people every year. They take five people in Stockholm and four in Gothenburg to study metal art, which is what I wanted to do. And then I, on a whim, applied to industrial design in Lund instead, and I got in. So I figured, I was like, oh, I might as well give it a go. And it turns out that design was, I think, a really lovely space for me because it was um, it was sort of where you could take the ideas from art. So something you want to, um, a topic you want to bring up or uh, a behavior you want to change. And uh, suddenly through design, you had a bigger audience than people who go to a gallery. Um, and uh, so I loved it in the end. But when I graduated, I um, applied for an internship at IKEA and I got it. But that was more in the sort of concept design area where we were working more with what should the future range of IKEA be. And uh, yeah, when I was hired, the person who hired me actually left to work at IKEA in India and uh, had not really informed anyone else that I was coming. (laughs) So when I arrived... (laughs) There was this like, ha, huh, who are you and why are you here and what are you going to do? And I was a bit like, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. But uh, nobody told me. So um, what I did is I basically asked everyone that was doing something I thought was interesting what they were doing and if I could help and started inviting me myself to all of these meetings saying I would just listen because I was the intern. And amazingly enough, a lot of people let me do that. And uh, after a while, uh, as they were sort of changing a lot of things in Ikea around how they were working with colors and materials and mood boards at the time, I had a lot of inputs. And uh, after a while, they sort of were just like, well, you should stay. And they made up a position for me at the end of my internship. Okay, so the position that you have was made specifically for you. It was a custom-made position. (laughs) You designed your own position. Yeah, I kind of did. I didn't I didn't mean to. I didn't know you could, but it did kind of happen that way. So I um I was apprentice creative leader, <laughs> which is a funny title, but that is what I was after I was intern. And um now since about 2 years I've been a real creative leader. But the other people I work with have been with IKEA for 30 years. Oh wow. And I'm the only uh, junior <laughs> person around in my department. So um, I think at the time when I arrived, a lot of people felt like it was good to get other perspectives in. And I'm really happy I arrived at good timing. <laughs> That's such an interesting kind of process that you went through. And you came from a background that was your own private practice doing, you know, metal smith metal smithing. Mm. Is that what you, could, could you call it metal smithing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. It sounds better than jewelry making. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> and then you started being in a much larger company and it sounds like you were among a demographic that was very different than you. Mm. And you really found your own space in that, which I think is really brave. But were there things that you had to adjust to being in this new position and being around kind of a different crowd? Absolutely. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning, obviously, because I was in this department where everyone else had this experience from Ikea and this sort of the seniority that I didn't have. But I think, to be honest, I think that the difference or the, the gap between us was good for me because I never felt like I had to compete with them because I couldn't, because I was just so different that there was no way that I could yeah, get in a competition or try to prove myself. But I did use my difference and I did quite quickly use it and view it as a strength. Uh, also because I was told by people around me that it was my strength, uh, that my difference was fresh and interesting and broadened what this department was, was doing and looking at and what they were approaching. So I did adapt. Uh, IKEA is a huge organization. I didn't know anything <laughs> about how it was built up. I'm still four years in. Uh, learning so much all the time about just how different processes are um, sort of happening and different parts of the organization, how they're run, what affects what. But I I didn't feel like I had to give up as much as I might have thought before working at IKEA, that you would have to give up going from being an industrial designer and artist to working at IKEA. I feel like I got so much freedom and so much trust to shape my own space in the organization that I feel like I didn't have to adapt so much. Yeah, it sounds like you were appreciated for your differences. Yeah, yeah, surprisingly. I never thought of that before I went out working, that being being young and different and having another background could be, could be so valuable, but... Mm -hmm. um, it was. And did you feel like you entered a space in which people shared your ethical views? Yes and no. I think uh, there are some very strong values at IKEA. And I think also being Swedish and everyone else being Swedish, we have some pretty strong like similarities just when it comes to like culture and, and stuff. But um, it's a huge company and it's it's uh, in the team I'm in, I feel like we share values, but uh, there are always going to be people that are further away <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, from your values too, uh, mm -hmm. when it's such a big company. I, I think it's wonderful that um, you've been able to shape uh, this particular part of your work that you're doing now internationally within that organizational structure though. Yeah, it's, I'm really happy it worked out. <laughs> Would you yeah. feel comfortable speaking a little bit about your values in design? Um, it's such a big topic. I don't know that I can sum it all up, but I think, um, for example, I think it's really important to me that whatever we're making right now and going forward is as sustainable as possible. And I think that making the purpose of a product super clear why it's being made and for who and for what is is something that I uh, I think is just 
it's common sense, but it's also really, really important to not lose track of when you're in a sort of business setting. And I think that's why I've been so happy to work with these social entrepreneurs because I think even if we're making a decorational item that like has a, a function because it makes people happy and it's beautiful, it still also has this bigger mission and impact in the way that it like it gives people in areas where jobs are really needed jobs and something to do and there is a, a way for them to grow their business. So that has been really nice for me in this space because I think um, that's one area where my values have yeah, really matched with what I've been doing. And then now, for example, going forward, I'm actually going to be more focused on the colors and yeah, the overarching color palette for all IKEA furniture, which I've worked with before, but now I will have possibility to manage that in a way and wow. steer it a little bit more. IKEA is a very flat organization and I'm not sure manager means the same. We say leader <laughs> to make it more flat. <laughs> I'm going to lead it. <laughs> that is so exciting. My God. Yeah, but that's an area where I really want to bring in some of my sort of passions. And, and one of them is I want to understand more the sustainability aspects when it comes to colors and pigments mm, and mm -hmm. what it means uh, from a sustainability aspect when we produce different colors. Because um, I just learned, for example, that pastels are the most sustainable colors on textiles okay. uh, to dye because uh, you don't have to uh, use as much water as you do when you make a black textile, for example. Mm -hmm. Oh man, all of my clothes are completely unsustainable then, I'm realizing. <laughs> it's so funny. I've, I've talked to so many architects and designers about this and they all have the same panic because everyone <laughs> wears black all the time. <laughs> but like those kinds of things I find really, really interesting because when you're at a scale like IKEA, it's, um, it's just, uh, you need to know these things. Um, and so I'm, that's something where I'm, I'm just starting, but I'm finding out more and more also about like glazes for ceramics. IKEA is already very aware about uh, most of these things. Um, and there are experts within IKEA who are like ceramic glaze engineers and textile engineers. And they're the ones who are telling me this. So it's not like the business doesn't know. But for me, sitting in a, an overarching position where I can influence the color palette, it's its great for me to build that in from the beginning. Yeah, sustainability and circularity will inform the aesthetics uh, of what we're doing and should do that too. Yeah, especially when you're producing on such a large scale, something as simple as the kind of pigment that you're using for one thing that's going to be produced so many times has a huge impact. Absolutely. It is interesting too because then uh, sometimes, I mean, I am obsessed with beauty as a lot of designers are mm -hmm. and uh, and sometimes it's super frustrating because you'll see something that's gorgeous that another company is making but at IKEA we're absolutely never going to make that because we have to follow all of the chemical laws in all of the countries where we're uh, selling the, the product and we have huge safety compliance things that we have to think about when we're making stuff and so it puts really big uh, limitations on the design of, of things too which can be super frustrating but when you zoom out and you understand why <laughs> mm -hmm. why I can't have a red glaze because it's toxic and people who make it are dying then it's quite obvious um, that you shouldn't make it but um, I'm learning all the time I don't have all the answers yet yeah 
you're touching on it quite a bit, but um, I did read this past year that I guess in 2018, 70% of all of what IKEA has produced has been either from recycled or renewable or sustainable sources, right? And mm-hmm. I think they're aiming to have that number be 100% by... I think it's 2030. 2030, is that right? I, I think so. I don't know this by heart, but I know that we're working towards it. Don't know the exact year. I think 2030. Um, you're you're saying that this is a daily conversation that people that you work with are having, and you have experts that are overseeing the materials that you're using, the dyes, the pigments, everything in an effort to make sure that what you're putting into the world is not toxic and it's sustainable and renewable as much as possible. Absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's a daily conversation, but it's also something where I know like there are hundreds of people working on only this, like finding all the sourcing and then being like, because the the problem sometimes for IKEA is that we find something that's recycled, like you can use it for production, it's great, but then we have to make sure, we have to trace where the things that they are recycling it from or making it from, Mm -hmm. the recycled material, where they come from and are they toxic? And can they be put into a children's toy? Or are the particles in the recycled material more toxic than a normal plastic, for example? So, so it's, it's a huge and very complex topic and, and quest uh, that IKEA is on now. But I think that it's a super interesting journey. And I think there will be so many interesting materials coming out of it. But it is going to change how we... Um, the aesthetics of of design in the future because uh, pure see-through uncolored plastic can never be made from recycled plastic for example and so we will have to not buy see-through plastic containers if we can't figure that out uh, within a couple of years yeah i'm i'm not the expert so uh I don't feel comfortable like predicting where we're at in this journey, but I think it is something that informs my my work a lot with colors and materials, and I'm confident that there's good stuff coming out of it already now. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear the way that it informs your approach, mm. and I'm I'm curious in the work that you're doing with people across different cultures, you were speaking about working with designers in Jordan, in Thailand, in India. Is this something that is also part of that conversation? And are people that you're working with learning from this? Or is it something that they also already know? Or how does that conversation exist? It's a topic that's like universally interesting. Um, And sometimes it's more present in India and Shanghai and Bangkok that, for example, the air is, is so bad that people are wearing masks all around the city. And and when we landed in Thailand now, uh, the air was so bad that the uh, people meeting us and greeting us at the airport immediately gave us masks before we went up just to get in the car. And that's when you realize that like this is a real, tangible, scary, dystopian future that we're looking at if we don't do something about it. And it's already it's already there in Bangkok certain months of the year and in Delhi all of the winter so I think it's obviously part of the conversation 
Um, but then in some aspects, like in India, for example, they have this phenomena called Jugad, which is, it's just sort of typical Indian culture where if, if something is broken, like a leg of a table or something, it's common to see someone just having duct taped a plastic cup under the table, like under the, under the leg that's broken and just sort of haphazardly have fixed it. And that's sort of the spirit of Jugad, <laughs> uh, where you just, you fix stuff. You don't throw it away. You repair it and you make things work that aren't working. And I think that's in many ways a much more sustainable spirit than we have in Sweden or uh, Canada or so, where, where it's much more about throwing stuff away. I think there's also a Japanese approach about fixing broken things and in a way that making them even more beautiful. Mm, Wabi-sabi, right? Yeah, it's part of that practice. I, I think it's called, um, I don't know if I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's uh, kintsugi, I think, where you uh, ah, put the yeah. pieces of plates or like ceramic together with gold and they look yes, so I've seen beautiful. That. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah, and it's more unique and more precious that way too. Exactly, and I think that's really something that we will have to learn to love going mm -hmm. forward mm -hmm. but yeah that's where like we can learn a lot from all of these other cultures that already have that in them i i feel like working with designers from other cultures than my own always sort of enriches the entire process and and the learning is so much bigger because you get all of these little yeah insights and stories and angles on design and the objects and the stories behind them that you would never have thought of yourself. So that's another sort of perk of working with people from other countries and cultures. Um, I had a, an, another question that came up for me earlier. You mentioned that industrial design has this ability to influence behavior. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think uh, people underestimate how design can really change people's behavior, but also change people's lives sometimes too. Um, I know it sounds a little pretentious, but I think it's really interesting with like, for example, like the arrival, these are very industrial design examples, but like the arrival of the uh, washing machine, it's a huge thing for women. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I read that. I think that's really interesting. Like this uh, hardcore piece of industrial design changed how much time women had to do other stuff than just clean everyone's laundry. And I think that is something that is really interesting and inspiring to me that these small, that was a big thing, but even small things that you can design can change how people interact with objects or the surroundings and uh, for example, with IKEA, like the way we uh, set up uh, for separating your trash can maybe hopefully make it easier for people to recycle more. Uh, also, making sure that there is like uh, storage in sort of spaces of the products that are otherwise not used, like under a bed or uh, under a sofa can make small space living a much nicer and more pleasant experience in Tokyo uh, or or Sweden. Um, but I think all of these little either functions or um, thoughts 
that you have as a designer, if you can translate them into your design, it really can change how people behave in their home and outside of it. And I think it can have these um, bigger sort of influences on on how you can then use that time for something else. No, I totally agree with you. I think, I mean, if you can give people the gift of time, even if it's 10 minutes in a day that mm-hmm. you, you don't have to do something, that is huge, I think. Yeah, and it, it can it can free up their time to do something else, write a lovely book or uh, something do something important. Or look at um, your dog right in the eyes. <laughs> That's what I do yeah, with my free time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want those extra 10 minutes for looking your dog in the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, before we say goodbye, you talked a little bit about the work that's coming up for you in terms of designing color palettes for a bunch of different projects. Is there anything else that you're really looking forward to that's upcoming soon for you? Continuing the work with the collection that I'm working on now with the designers from Jordan, Thailand, and India, because mm-hmm. I'm actually traveling both to Amman in Jordan to uh, visit the Assyrian refugee women who are embroidering the products that we're making for the collection together with the designer. And that's going to be amazing. Uh, I've never been to Jordan, so I'm really looking forward to that and hearing their stories. And then I'm going to India. Um, to the suppliers there who work with um, textiles and natural fibers. So that'll be fun. And I'm looking forward to seeing the designers interact directly with the women uh, making the products because we've always had uh, Western designers before who've had a translator. And I think that's going to be great to see the communication go directly from the designer to the person making and no in-betweens. So... That's going to be great. Uh, Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been really, really interesting to hear about your artistic process, about your background, about the work that you're doing now and where you're headed in the future. Um, So thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to my babbling. I feel like I've been (laughs) drifting off at times. But uh, yeah, really, really lovely. And I'd love to hear more about you guys some other time maybe maybe you should start a podcast just to interview us (laughs) right i feel like that might happen actually (laughs) oh man maria i hope you uh come visit us here in uh in montreal sometime it would be lovely to meet you in person likewise thanks for having me You've been listening to House Nine's Art and Humanity podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. House Nine is a collaborative graphic design studio, working with local and international artists, researchers, nonprofit organizations, and cultural institutions. We develop dynamic projects in all areas of interactive and print design. House Nine would like to acknowledge our design studio is located on unceded indigenous territory, and all members of the studio are settlers, whether descendants of colonizers or new immigrants. This island is called Jojage in the language of the Ganyokehaga, and Munyang in the language of the Anishinaabe. 
In English, this island is known as Montreal, and in French, Montréal. This island has and continues to be a meeting place for indigenous communities, as well as generations of settlers from all around the globe who have made a home here. As settlers, we must acknowledge that we benefit greatly from the colonial laws that have shamefully persecuted the indigenous people of this land. As we continue to live on this land, whether unable or unwilling to return to our original homelands, we as individuals want to decolonize ourselves and our actions. We are deeply indebted to the indigenous people of the colonial territory of so-called Canada for their continued stewardship of this land. As a studio, we are learning to act in solidarity with indigenous peoples in our work and in our day-to-day -day lives.